This series gives you a direct line to the pinnacle traders. We're covering everything from when the odds are initially posted to looking at how the market might react. This is the opening line. Hello and welcome once again to the opening line. I'm your host Ben Cronin and here with me to help analyse those week six matchups is Adam Chernoff. How are you Adam? Doing well, ready for week six. Good stuff. As always we'll jump straight in. First game we've got is the Carolina Panthers at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the market has been flip-flopping around a bit on this one and I think you explained earlier in the week that where we aren't on a key number that's, that's kind of to be expected a bit. Um, we're currently on the Panthers minus two with the over-under at 47. The traders had it spot on with the Panthers last week. They're favoured again. There's been a lot of talk about Christian McCaffrey. Um, a little bit strange seems though consensus seems to be that the run game isn't really much worth nowadays. But another game in London. Um, do you think it's going to be one that's won on the ground or through the air? I think that it's probably going to be a pretty competitive game that both teams are going to have to figure out some sort of way to attack the opposing defense through the air is the way that I would handicap this game out. As you mentioned, a lot of talk about Christian McCaffrey, but I'm not necessarily sure it's probably for the right reasons this week. We saw this exact same matchup in week number two, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers got McCaffrey off of the game against the Rams where his usage rate was extremely high. A lot of carries, a lot of involvement in the passing game. And then on the short week turnaround, he was forced to run against this Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense, and he had no success doing so. By far and away, his worst performance of the season thus far. And that's a lot of credit to this Tampa Bay rushing defense, who's by far and away number one uh, in the league against the rush, and they've done so against a very difficult schedule. So it was a combination of his usage rate in the week before, the short week of rest leading up to that Thursday night game, and then the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense. And now, although there's the seven-day schedule stretched out, the Carolina Panthers did have to deal with the lengthy flight over. They left Wednesday, and they got to London early Thursday afternoon. And so, I mean, that really goes a long way in sort of just going against your recovery time and your natural schedule. So we're looking at him last week as well against Jacksonville. Huge part of that game, too. So it's a little bit of the same situation playing out. Now you put this game on the neutral field, but that Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense has only got stronger in the front seven, stopping the rush. So looking at Kyle Allen, uh, he's now made three starts. His first start, as well as his second, he was very good at spreading the football around, had four receivers with at least 35 yards receiving in each of those games. And that's the strength of this Panthers defense when they can utilize the width of the field, attack you um, lengthwise down the field as well, stretch you out both ways and get their hands into the playmakers with a ton of speed. That's where they have success. And that game against Jacksonville came out with a win. Pinnacle traders were big on that one too. But we saw a little bit of how potentially they can struggle when they're only relying on McCaffrey a little bit more than their playmakers. Only two guys over 30 yards receiving in that game. McCaffrey did a blunt of the work, and Carolina was actually outgained yards per play. So looking at this price, we know that there was a week two matchup. Panthers were six-and-a-half-point favorites, really sort of power-rated them as a three-and-a-half-point favorite in that situation, taking away home field. Now looking at this one, we can really take a true number because it's being played on the neutral. We're looking at Carolina two-and-a-half. I think a one-point adjustment through the three, which equates um, to a little bit more than other numbers, but when we're looking at that adjustment from a percentage standpoint, um, sort of puts these two teams on pretty level playing field in terms of the adjustment for the ratings. So a number that's pretty well priced side and total. And then kind of, I mean, outside of the, the Panthers and more generally this pass versus run debate, do you think we're, we're going to start seeing, obviously there's so much focus on the pass and ultimately trying to stop the pass, do you think we're going to see defenses opened up against the run or is it just is that going to be a season long trend do you think? Well, I I actually just replied to a friend of the show True Poker Joe posted something on that about Twitter this morning and it was an interesting take because I think a lot of the run pass community they get they get on you quick and if you're trying to sort of share ideas and talk about that it's a, a bit of an intimidating space to get into and all of their arguments on how passing is more efficient than running the football like none of that can be denied but we're starting to see cases here and there where um, teams are stacking their rosters to defend the rush or to defend the pass pardon me which is the right 
approach to take because obviously you want to defend the more efficient option more frequently. But we are seeing cases here and there where teams are finding success running the football, controlling the game plan, um, and having a lot of success doing it. There's about four to six teams in the league right now that are starting to take advantage of the way that these defensive rosters are being set up. But at the end of the day, even if you stack your players and try focus on running the football, if you're not doing it at the most efficient times and calling it in the right down and distance situations, then over the long term, you're not going to end up winning a lot of football games in the NFL. So is there an advantage starting to sort of present itself? Yes, to an extent, with the big caveat being if the coaching staff is not calling the plays correctly, uh, then it doesn't really matter who you have on that roster. You're going to find yourself in a bad situation. So I, I think it's a bit of both worlds, but certainly to a little bit of an extent, that opportunity, I think, is starting to show up. But it all comes down to the play calling at the end of the day. Well, if Poker Joe's asking that, I'm glad. Shows I must be asking the right questions. It's, he's as sharp as they get. Right, so on to the Cincinnati Bengals at the Baltimore Ravens. And it seems that, I mean, confidence is dropping in the Bengals week after week there. They're still yet to get a win on the board. This one opened up at Baltimore minus 10.5. It's gone out to minus 12. And the over-under is where it, where it opened at 47.5. So is this one kind of a case of how, ba- how bad are the Bengals and not how good are the Ravens? Or is there more to it than that? How do you think it plays out? Well, I think there's a lot of this sort of reacting off of what occurred last week. Baltimore gets a victory in Pittsburgh they probably didn't necessarily deserve. And then Cincinnati ends up losing at home to the Car- to the Arizona Cardinals, but they give up a ton of yards in the process, over 500 yards given up to that Arizona offense, which um, for the Cardinals this season, that's uh, their highest mark by far. Uh, but we're looking at the Cincinnati defense 26th in rushing success rate and 29th in passing success rate, allowing 52% of rushes and passes to grade successful. Uh, that's not going to make you competitive in very many NFL games ever. Um, So this defense, absolutely atrocious. But what's really concerning is just how much space they're allowing in the secondary. Uh, The numbers certainly show one thing, but if we're looking at the sort of qualitative grades on this as well, Cincinnati's grading out 30th in the NFL in terms of coverage grade. So um, usually when you see numbers that, that drastic, there's some schedule to look into. It's a schedule to factor as well. Um, certainly that schedule hasn't benefited the, the Bengals facing a, a below-average schedule of opposing pass offenses. But when you look at sort of the qualitative numbers to back all of this up, it's actually saying that it's a little bit worse than the numbers actually indicate. So very concerning for Cincinnati. And then you match them up against Baltimore. I think this is a spot where we haven't seen the Ravens pass offense as explosive as it was to start the season in the first two weeks. Um, in these past three games. And I think this is a spot where they can pretty well get whatever they want offensively. Um, Schematically, they match up very well against the Bengals. We're looking at a pretty enormous number for a division game. Um, Baltimore's highest 12-point favorites right now. Um, That's pretty large to get into uh, in a spot like this. But I don't know. There's certainly not going to be much support for the Cincinnati Bengals unless this one gets to like a 14, which then I think it's pretty limited. Not sure it gets all the way up there. I, I think this is a pretty... Pretty drastic line overall and is probably priced pretty pretty correctly for this game and this situation. Yeah, you mentioned there another big number. And I mean, the likes of the Jets, the Dolphins, the Redskins. I mean, this this season, there seems to be a lot of disparity between the, the poor teams and the kind of the better teams. Is that is that common season to season or is this season just worse than ever? This season certainly seems worse than ever. I don't have, I mean, it was the first week where we saw two 20-point favorites in I believe it was NFL history a couple of weeks ago where um, the Patriots were playing the Jets and the Cowboys were playing the Dolphins most at home. So we're seeing sort of the extreme stretched out a little bit further with the teams like the Jets, the Dolphins, the Redskins and the Bengals. Um, but we're also seeing a lot of really good teams sort of pull away at the other end of the extreme, usually power ratings um, when you're looking at top to bottom in the NFL throughout the 32 teams. Historically, you're looking anywhere between sort of 13 and 15 points dividing each other and that's just based off winning percentages and and projected sort of price points for all the teams but anytime you sort of stretch out that 14 point mark is a bit of an oddity usually comes late in the season but seeing now week six just going off the winning percentage that the win total markets dictated uh, heading into week one of the season to where we are now we can see a couple clear examples where that sort of price point is stretched out to 22 to 24 points 
Um, so we're looking at a pretty significant stretch at the extremes. I think the middle of the, of the league um, is pretty difficult to price for a lot of for a lot of betters. But when we look at the top and the bottom now this year, it just seems like some of these numbers just haven't been big enough. And it's raising a lot of question marks within the market. So now we've got the Seattle Seahawks at the Cleveland Browns. And the, the Browns have probably been the biggest disappointment for betters this season. There's probably... A lot of futures and outright tickets out there, probably some maybe some MVP tickets on Mayfield as well. But I mean, it seems like the market is beginning to catch up um, on the Browns and the Seahawks are favoured here by minus one and a half. The over-under is 46. So it was another poor performance from Cleveland. They went down 31-3 to the 49ers. The Seahawks are kind of going the other way. They seem to be doing pretty well apart from that loss in week two. There isn't much on in this based on the handicap, but what are your thoughts? I think we've probably seen the Cleveland Browns bottom out in terms of price point, and it wasn't something I really anticipated happening until, I don't know, maybe week 10, 11 in the season. Uh, their schedule gets drastically easier as we go on, so it was really sort of a get through this tough portion, see how low it gets, and then potentially look at backing this team, which despite all of the hype and everything that came with them to begin the season – is still filled with a lot of talented players. And something interesting that I saw this morning was an interview with their offensive coordinator, Todd Munkin. Uh, and he came out and really implied, if you watch the interview back and sort of read between the lines, that he really wasn't involved with this offensive game plan that's going on with the Cleveland Browns. And there's been a lot of questions with the personnel choices that they've been using, which are drastically different than what we saw Baker Mayfield and this team have success with last season towards the end of the year. Uh, so there's been a lot of question marks in that regard. And Todd Munkin really put a lot more um, sort of uncertainty around this offense. So it's interesting to see that perhaps Freddie Kitchens is now taking over the play calling and the personnel packages a little bit more. If that's the case, you hope he corrects things. Um, and if that's going to happen, then we're probably looking at a Seattle defense which is now in an opportune time for the Cleveland Browns to take advantage of, uh, especially against the pass. We've seen the Browns not really be creative with their passing game, have a lot of questionable route choices, uh, but really look to push the ball down the field and hold that football from Baker Mayfield's hand as long as possible. Now we're looking at a Seattle defense, by far their biggest weakness, um, deep down the field defending these routes. We're looking at the 22nd success rate pass defense in the NFL in Seattle, but a cover grade in terms of their secondary, that's a lot lower, right at 26. So there's certainly an opportunity for Cleveland to take advantage of the Seattle Seahawks, but it all comes down to that offensive game plan. We really haven't seen a good one come from Cleveland. Uh, they backed into one against the Baltimore Ravens, which um, I don't know if it was intentional or if it was just them continuing to do what they were doing. Showed a little bit more heavy packages in that in that game against Baltimore, but that was sort of what you had to do against Baltimore, and they found success with it. Saw them regress a little bit to their sort of misled tactics against the San Francisco 49ers and paid the price. So if they put together the right game plan from a personnel perspective, they're going to have a ton of success moving ball against the Seattle Seahawks. Now at this number, you kind of have to think, is this sort of the bottom of the price point? Seattle comes off a bit of a misleading win on Thursday night football, earns a lot of support. Um, coming off that victory, and now they're sort of stretched out to an extreme, laying two here on the road, suggesting that they're both five points better than the Cleveland Browns on a neutral field. That's a pretty interesting number when you consider that this look-ahead had it uh, drastically different in favor of the Cleveland Browns. So a lot of reaction to those results in the last two two games, both played on primetime football. Nothing in my account yet, but sort of tempted with the Browns. Um, maybe a really good teaser like to look with this lower total at 46 going through the three and the seven. Yeah, I guess the kind of inevitable if there is that that overhyping and a lot being made of a team and there is a fall from grace, then there may well be a play to be made somewhere down the line. It's always a buy low after there's a sell high. Right, so we've got the Houston Texans at the Kansas City Chiefs now and you did a pretty good job of your estimate on the openers with this one. Obviously, we didn't have the number up when we did the the opening show, but it's up at minus six and a half, and we have seen some movements on the Chiefs, and um, the Chiefs are now minus five, sorry. Uh, the over-under, a big one, 54 and a half. It's being billed as Mahomes versus Watson, a game that seems to be all about offense, and, and no surprise to see the highest total on the board. How do you break this match up down then? There's The movement's all really related to what we've seen with Patrick Mahomes. Got banged up twice in that game against the Indianapolis Colts on Sunday Night Football, dealing with an ankle injury. 
has not really been given an official status for the game on Sunday, has just been questionable. That's really sort of the movement. We saw this happen right after open on uh, Tuesday morning. And that's really when started the injury word and the injury talk began sort of swirling around the league and some of the reports. Um, so it's interesting to see that really come down to that point. And since then, it's held pretty steady at four. Uh, I would anticipate that he's going to play. I would be pretty surprised if he didn't. Uh, but this number probably goes to show that perhaps he's a little bit more limited than we think. Um, Houston, something we've seen interesting with Kansas City. And we're starting to sort of see some trends emerge with quarterbacks to what they can do against specific defenses. And now with tape being much more available, a lot more stats on players, we're seeing teams approach um, sort of opposing quarterbacks in different ways. And what we've seen in the last two weeks in games where Patrick Mahomes has, for the most part, struggled. It's very easy to get excited when you see him, like he did in the first half on Sunday Night Football against the Colts, get moving outside the pocket, get really creative and make some incredible plays. Uh, but when you look at the big picture of everything, these last two games have been among the worst in his entire career. But you look at what the Detroit Lions and the Indianapolis Colts did in terms of coverage. The Colts played man coverage 73% of snaps, and the Detroit Lions played man coverage 70% of snaps. And both of those teams, very much zone defense-oriented um, personnel units. And so it's interesting to see them put together such drastic game plans, something we've never seen from both of those defensive units before, to go this far to man coverage. Indianapolis, historically, the highest rate of zone defense in the NFL. So to see them go all the way across the play man field, even with all of the injuries, really interested to see them do that. But it's really getting clear because if you look back at where Mahomes struggled last year, both games were against the Patriots. What did the Patriots do in those games? 75% zone coverage in that championship game and in the highest rate of zone coverage that Mahomes saw um, in that first game they played back in week six about one year ago. Um, and that was the highest mark of the season. So that's really interesting to see now teams sort of defending him in a certain situation and playing more man coverage and causing a lot of trouble. And I think the injuries to Watkins and Tyree Kill allow teams to do that a little more liberally. But where this gets interesting is Houston's probably the worst coach defense in the NFL. So that's why we're seeing a bit of a high total here at 55. Has come down about a half point. Very similar market to what we saw on Sunday night football. Um, you also look at the Houston Texans offense. Not an offense that's going to consistently beat you on the ground and hold the football as Indianapolis did. They have a very good success rate, fifth in the NFL in that regard. Uh, but that offensive line is not going to hold up over four quarters if they try to put forward the same offensive game plan that the Indianapolis Colts did. Very drastically different offensive lines in terms of that regard. So uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be interested in Houston here. Uh, even at six and a half, I wasn't necessarily interested in Houston. Certainly not looking that way at four. Uh, totals probably a little bit too high for me to get interested in as well. Uh, you get a very different looking quarterback in Deshaun Watson, a very different looking receivers as well. So as good as the Kansas City secondary has been, uh, really not a game that I'm looking to get involved with either way. Uh, I do think that the spread is getting to the point where you can probably have the discussion that it's a little bit low and there's potentially value on Kansas City, uh, but the total certainly a stay away for me. Do you think it's the highest total seal season? Uh, this is now equal to what we saw on Sunday Night Football, and I, I can't see it going up, especially with that news. So I'm not sure that this is the top of the mountain yet. So now we've got the New Orleans Saints at the Jacksonville Jaguars, and it's another game that has it's been hovering around a pick with a little bit of back and forth. We're currently on the Jaguars at minus one, while the over-under has stayed stable at 44. So we've got two standing quarterbacks here, Bridgewater with his 3-0 record since starting, Minshew's posted some okay numbers and he has obviously got a really good moustache. Um, you've been pretty vocal on the latter, but who do you see coming out on top of the the battle of the backup quarterbacks? He impressed me a little bit against Carolina. I'll give him that. Um, starting to win me over. I still don't... There's discussions that he's going to take Nick Foles' spot, which just ludicrous. But that's for a podcast probably in about six weeks when Foles comes back. This game on Sunday... I mean, Jacksonville's the spot, right? This is the game that all of the handicappers online are going to be pointing at because you're going to have a ton of volume, a ton of recreational support for the New Orleans Saints. You see a bit of a number that suggests the Jaguars are better or equal to the Saints in a lot of regards. Um, 
like from a price point perspective, this number saying that the Saints are about a point better than the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, I mean, you can't, it's difficult to get there to say the least. So it's really the game that sets up where you have sort of all the recreational narrative on one side and then people sort of picking and choosing their spot with the Jacksonville Jaguars on the other side where I get a little bit concerned with this one um, for the Saints is we've seen money come against them pretty heavily the last two weeks. If you think back to last week, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, six and a half points at open, bet down all the way to three. And I think that that movement is really based off of what we see from Teddy Bridgewater throughout his three starts. And uh, the first two starts that he made, the Saints were wildly outgained in both of those by the Seahawks. And then on Sunday Night Football by the Cowboys, they, of course, get the win without scoring a touchdown against Dallas. Um, that Seattle game was as lopsided of a box score as you ever see. That win was supplemented by defensive and special teams touchdowns. So a lot of people were ready to sort of oppose them, citing Tampa Bay coming off the 55 performance. Everything's all right. That number was hammered down. And, of course, the New Orleans Saints put together their best performance of the season. And a lot of people were left uh, with losing betting tickets in their account. Now we get to this week. And we're seeing a little bit more of a situational setup for Jacksonville that's a lot more appealing than Tampa Bay going across the country, knowing they have London on deck and playing in the Superdome, one of the most difficult spots to play. Now New Orleans has to go away from the turf, which is something that we haven't seen them do since the week two loss at Los Angeles, which was their worst performance of the season. Losing Brees didn't help, but now they go to regular grass field in Jacksonville in the heat outside of the controlled conditions. You face a defense that's a significant step up. Jacksonville 11th in defensive success rate. The three teams that Bridgewater has faced thus far were 20th, 21st, and 24th in the league. So even though he was at the lowest point of the league in air yards per pass attempt throughout those three weeks, uh, he was still finding success because these defenses are so soft. Now he plays Jacksonville, a very different style of defense as well. Jalen Ramsey returns. So that's a big boost for the Jags. They can take away Michael Thomas, and this becomes the Kamara game, but he's running against the defensive line. Um, which can certainly give him some issues as well. And you account for the surface, slows him down just a little bit to where he's not necessarily as dynamic as we see him on the fast surfaces on turf in the Superdome. So certainly some reasons to get excited for Jacksonville, but I just don't necessarily buy this offense continuously having success against the Saints defense. Uh, Fournette has put up great numbers in the last three weeks when you're looking from the outside in, but three of his carries have accounted for more than 60% of his yards game in those three three um, three games. So you look at the Saints defense, which is very good at preventing explosive runs, very good up front and in the front seven. They take away Fournette. That puts Gardner Minshew against one of the more difficult defenses he's faced in the secondary, forced to find success. I'm Again, I'm not quite there with Gardner Minshew yet and to be laying points against the Saints, even without Drew Brees. And a lot of these concerns that are mounting, not sure I can get there with the Jags. So another game I think that's priced pretty well, maybe a little bit generous for Jacksonville. Um, if anything, maybe a slight bit of value on the Saints, but not a, not, not a game I'm going to have in my account side or total again. I think give it a couple of weeks and you'll be growing a Minshew mustache. No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen. Right. We'll move on to the Philadelphia Eagles at the Minnesota Vikings, and we're still pretty stable on the numbers here. The Vikings at minus three and the over-under at 44. People are still keen on Minnesota, but not enough to move them off the handicap. Um, it's been a bit of a mixed bag for, for both of these teams so far this season. Both are coming in off a, a big win, albeit it was against some, some pretty poor opposition on both counts. It certainly looks like a close one with the market edging towards Minnesota. So do you agree with that? I don't think so. Uh, but it's an interesting number because we'll probably have to go back to last Tuesday for this one. Look at some of the Las Vegas casino numbers. And if you're looking at the week six, <coughs> six look ahead lines, um, the one that really stood out was Minnesota minus three because that was released last Tuesday when everything was really going south for Minnesota in the news and the media with the situation that they had between Kirk Cousins and his receivers. And so this number really stood out through the noise last Tuesday. And then we saw the Minnesota Vikings get bet up pretty heavily against the New York Giants. And we saw the Eagles take a lot of money against the Jets. And both teams covered extremely comfortably. So both teams coming off very positive results. And this number opened exactly where the look-ahead line had it pegged. So interesting to see that this number, now going on about 12 to 13 days, 
has gone through two results, but really a lot of noise as well that could have worked against the Vikings and held steady. So interested to see now that we're really pricing these teams on an even level inside of the market. I think the one thing that potentially people are missing with the Philadelphia Eagles offensively going against this Vikings defense, which is a pretty significant step up compared to what they faced this season. Uh, but in the last four weeks, they've put together three games, which were sub 4.5 yards per play, including games against the Lions and the Falcons, which we know the Falcons defensively, one of the worst teams in the league. We'll get to that in just a second. Uh, they put up 4.0 yards per play. So really low numbers coming from the Eagles offense in the absence of Deshaun Jackson. But I just have trouble trying to understand how the Vikings are going to move the football against this Eagles defense. The Vikings, they run outside zone on 55% of their plays. And the Eagles have performed right around league average, stopping the rush. And they've done so against a difficult schedule of opposing defenses. But where the Eagles really stand out, their defensive line, number one, and adjusted line yards, but they're very good at forcing negative plays. They're doing so 32% of runs, holding the opponent to zero yards or a negative gain. No other team in the NFL is above 27%. So there's certainly some issues for the Eagles within the secondary, but if you're putting the game on Kirk Cousins' shoulders and that run game isn't there to support him, he loves to work in a bootleg off of that play-action fake, get the crossing patterns. In many ways, the passing attack has become a little bit predictable. There is this sort of added emphasis after what occurred in the news in the locker room last week to get the ball to his receivers. We saw them do really well against the Giants secondary, but that's the second-worst unit in the league. Absolutely brutal. They didn't have their three main linebackers as well, so Cook was able to run with pretty well ease throughout the entire game. So a very different look for the Vikings. But I think just looking from this number perspective, it, it was set 12 weeks, 12 days ago, and it's held in place since. So very interesting number altogether. Feels like um, there's a lot of opinion and sort of influence in this taking a bit of a stand against the money coming in. I didn't expect to see Minnesota money, um, but I would probably lean Eagles, but not a bet that I'm going to have in my account either, which is really becoming the theme of week six overall. Yeah, plenty of close games, and it seems difficult ones to work out. So now we've got the Washington Redskins at the Miami Dolphins, and we were kind of just talking a little bit earlier about the the poor quality of some of the teams in the league, and this is this match sees two of them coming up against each other. Um, we said in our earlier pod that it's a difficult one to work out. The high handicap marks have, have drawn betters in on Miami in previous weeks, and despite despite this week's one being a bit smaller on the plus four and a half side where we opened, we have seen more of the same. So Miami are now plus three and a half. Um, the over-under stayed at 41. I think you kind of said it's it's difficult to make a case either way on this one, but the market seems to have a clear opinion. So Miami aren't going to get many chances to put a win on their record this season. Do you think this is one that they can take advantage of? It's, I don't think it matters if they do or don't. Um, it's not. I mean, this is the worst game we're going to see all season by far, not just from a fan perspective, but from a market perspective too. I mean... If you want to be back in the Dolphins, I'm not necessarily sure just getting three points at home against the Redskins is a spot where you want to do it. I understand it. You get the Redskins now without Jake Gruden. They bring in Callahan, who said some absolutely bizarre, dated, just weird way of thinking about NFL strategies to what he anticipates, but just a total ignorance to what has already occurred for the Redskins this season, which is concerning knowing that He's been involved with this team. So it's concerning to say that at the least. But I think the bye week somewhat tampered the wildly bearish expectations of the Miami Dolphins just a little bit in order for them to draw money in this situation. They put together some better efforts visually on the field. But from the numbers perspective, it's still as ugly as it's been <clears throat> through any week of the season. So uh, a game that I could not be further away from, I, I understand the movement. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I don't disagree with it enough or, nor think that there's value either side here or the total in this game. This is an ugly one that really no one needs to be betting. We'll move straight on then. San Francisco 49ers at the LA Rams. Um, the Rams have gone out half a point on the handicap. They opened at minus three and then out minus three and a half. The over-under currently sits on 50 and a half. I mean, it's a case of two, tale of two teams here, really. The 49ers have been flying. The Rams have been plodding along. I think people are beginning to pick up on Goff's weaknesses and some issues with Sean McVay's play calling. 
you were very vocal on both counts there quite a while back. I mean, I'm thinking back to the playoffs from last season. Um, obviously, the the Rams are favoured here, but do you think the 49ers have a chance to maintain that that 100% record? I do not. Um, where this gets interesting, so as you mentioned, uh, I've been very vocal against McVeigh throughout the six weeks we've now done this and throughout the preview podcast and a lot of work I did in the preview book for Pinnacle. Um, I said that he was just becoming predictable. And I think that that's something that's become widely understood throughout the league. And it's no secret that Jared Goff struggles against zone defense and he struggles against pressure and among the worst rates in the league when he's dealing with both of those things. But where this gets interesting and you have to do a little bit of work to sort of look into this is when Sean McVay is well aware of that, right? We know he's a smart guy. He's well aware of that. And the San Francisco 49ers, they do two things extremely well. They generate pressure with their front four, and they play uh, a significantly higher rate of zone defense than almost every other team in the NFL that's not named the Indianapolis Colts. And we've seen that stay consistent throughout their four games that they've played this season as well. But you would think that this is a spot where Jared Goff in the division struggles but you look at the games that he's played against the 49ers, now played them four times, all of those games, enormous victories. Why did that happen? Well, Sean McVay, again, he knows that this is the case. Jared Goff has never thrown more than 28 pass attempts against the 49ers in a game in his career. You look last season, he threw 50 combined dropbacks in two games. Rams ran the ball 78 times in those games. So we talk about situations where teams can potentially put together a run-first game plan and still have success and go against the run-pass narratives. There's maybe no better example than what Sean McVay has done against the 49ers in his career with this Rams team. And so it's difficult not to expect the exact same thing to happen uh, because the 49ers are doing both of these things at a higher rate than they have in the years past in terms of generating pressure with their front four and playing a lot of zone. And where the Rams become most creative is when they're not just relying on Goff to throw the ball 50, 60 times like we've seen a couple times so far this season. And what the 49ers do specifically within their zone, and if you look at some of the passing heat maps against, everything is allowed to be completed five to seven yards or less in front of the line of scrimmage. And where this really works out in the Rams' favor is the Rams' offense of their 11 personnel very much relies on the mesh concept, which are these tight routes run across the middle of the field where the two receivers are so close that it causes confusion within the defensive zone coverage. And this allows Goff to have a lot of easy throws, a lot of close throws to the line of scrimmage. So we should not expect Goff to drop back uh, more than 30 times in this game. But when he does, we should expect very easy, quick, efficient passes for him to get the ball out of his hand. And then it comes down to the combination of this run game. Maybe the Rams playing a little less 11 personnel getting their tight ends involved, two very good blocking tight ends on their roster so we can see how those can get involved and maybe create some easy play-action passes for Goff out of the pocket. But it's a game plan overall that I think people will just look at the outside numbers and really point to the 49ers. But if you look at how these two coaches play each other, it gets really interesting when we look at how the Rams can potentially move the football. When you look at moving the football for the 49ers side, they run the football more than any other team in the league, 57% rushes. And in a neutral game state, a lot of people will sort of point to the 49ers always being ahead, which is why these run numbers are inflated. How can Kyle Shanahan, this brilliant offensive mind, run the football? We love passing the football. He's doing it at 57% rate. But if you look at neutral game state situations, so points in the game where no team is leading by more than seven points, which is when you would expect sort of optimal game calling based on the game plan, Kyle Shanahan still runs the football. 55% of plays, which is still the highest rate in the NFL. So no matter how you break down this 49ers team, they are running the football at the highest rate in the NFL, positive or negative game state, where it becomes concerning. Their lead blocking fullback, Kyle Juszczyk, in on 33% of rushing plays, he's injured. Now they're going to be in their first game without their left tackle and their right tackle, Staley and McGlinchey. So we're looking at three of the best run blockers on this roster, two at the edges, one at the lead block, all out against this game. They're running now right into the center of their offensive line, which is right where somebody named Aaron Donald likes, likes to play. So uh, never really a positive situation when you're running right at them in that part of the line. So now the 49ers on a short week after playing Monday Night Football, 
going to have to adjust their game plan while the Rams have had the extra four days of preparation. Historically bodes very well for Sean McBay. But just from a price point perspective, to sort of wrap this up, if we look at the summer look-ahead lines, which are based off of those win totals and where they closed, this game had Los Angeles as a 7.5 to 8-point favorite. If we look at the look-ahead numbers last week, this game had Los Angeles as a 5.5-point favorite. Just because the line moved down doesn't mean there's value. As batters, we always have to evaluate the new information that's entered into the market. And so this movement down really can be equated to either betters very much responding to what we saw from San Francisco against the Cleveland Browns on Monday Night Football or the Rams against the Seahawks. And if you're going to point to that Thursday night football game, not only did the Rams miss the field goal at the end of the game to win, they also outgained the Seahawks, missed another field goal earlier, and turned the ball over inside the 15-yard line while the Seahawks played about as perfect of a game as we've seen from Seattle the entire season. So a bit of conflicting sort of results there. Difficult to say that this is that significant of a move. Uh, I just don't agree with the price point. I don't agree with the game plan. I don't agree with the 49ers numbers being as good as they look against the schedule of games they've placed. I just I, I think this number is too low and there's value on the Rams. Now we've got the Atlanta Falcons at the Arizona Cardinals in there. There's been no movement on the handicap with this. The Falcons are minus two and a half. And, and as we predicted, the over-under has ticked up a bit. It's gone from 50 to 51. Not really too much to shout about for either team this season, but it's, it is an intriguing matchup. And I know you were big on the potential for points in this one. I'm guessing not much has changed there, but maybe you could kind of explain a little bit about why that is. I thought you were going to say there's nothing to shout about within this game, and I said I'll gladly shout about the over. There you go. Intriguing matchup, but maybe not two two not so intriguing teams. But yeah, why why are you looking for the over on this one? So it's interesting when you think about the Arizona Cardinals who entered the season without their number one and number two cornerbacks, have suffered injuries within the secondary along the way, have been playing. Um, on the other side of a offense, which is running the one of the most highest play rates, but also playing extremely quickly, which tends to lead to a lot of fatigue on the defensive side. You look at their numbers. They're not good when we're talking about success rate. Um, Arizona 28th against the pass. But you pile all that in, rookie head coach, and everything on top of it. And then you compare it to the Atlanta Falcons, who have this defensive guru-labeled coach. The Arizona Cardinals secondary, as bad as it's been, has performed significantly better than the Atlanta Falcons defense. So that just sort of puts into a little bit of perspective how poor this Falcons defense has been. And unfortunately, we saw the Houston Texans really open them up last week uh, in a game that really moved this total up. We probably could have seen like a 47-48 otherwise. Uh, So you're going to have to settle for a little bit higher of a price point on this one at 51. Um, But you look at both of these teams, and it's a situation where We just have volume of plays and volume of passes against very weak secondaries. We already mentioned Arizona, 28 defending the pass. You look at Atlanta, um, they're they're worse, 31st in the league. So we have three of the or two of the worst four defensive secondaries in terms of passing success rate. We have two of the six worst defensive secondaries in terms of coverage grade, and then we have two offenses. Um, two of the quickest playing offenses, top seven in plays run. But when we're looking at neutral game state, uh, also two of the five quickest offenses to get to the line of scrimmage and run plays. And really, those numbers really sort of establish the game state and sort of the pace we can expect. But when you look from a matchup perspective, the Atlanta Falcons and what they do defensively is uh, it lacks a ton of creativity. They're very poor at disguising their coverages. They're very poor at disguising their blitzes. They're very poor at getting pressure with their front four. And they often settle for just bringing that front four rush, and then they'll drop seven seven guys into coverage. Uh, but they don't do much with those seven guys in coverage. They're not very aggressive. They're very passive within their zone reads. And so for a quarterback in Kyler Murray, who his biggest weakness thus far has really been reading the defense downfield, he's going to have a lot of easy windows to throw in. And I think... Arizona is probably the side in this game that has to sort of keep pace with Atlanta. 
because this Cardinals secondary now potentially without Tremaine Brock to add on to um, missing their number one and number two corners, that's going to be an enormous blow. And when you're facing Sanu, Ridley, and Julio, I mean, this is not a battle that Arizona is going to win. Um, so if Kyler Murray can get these easy reads like we saw Deshaun Watson pick apart the Falcons and this Arizona Cardinals offensive line can hold up against a very poor pass rush of the Atlanta Falcons that doesn't pose much pressure with just their front four, uh, this really opens up quite nicely for Kyler Murray. I think we're going to see another game like we saw last week against the Bengals where there were nine red zone trips um, throughout the game, which obviously translates to a ton of points being scored. Those points weren't necessarily realized till later in the game, but I think it's a similar case where both teams move the ball with ease between the 20s, and it just becomes a matter of execution in the red zone. And if both of these teams can just perform to average in the red zone, I think we see this get to the high 50s uh, with relative ease. So really a low number on this one that I would expect to continue to go up as we get towards kickoff on Sunday. Right, and now we've got the Dallas Cowboys at the New York Jets and not much to look into in the way of line movement. We've got Dallas still at minus 7.5 on the handicap and a point has come off the over-under has dropped from 45 to 44. So Dallas have struggled the last few weeks and they have a good chance here to get their season back on track against the Jets. And I guess putting biases aside for one second, is there is there anything the Jets can do here to, to get a win or, or more realistically cover the spread? Well, this Dallas defense has not been very good, despite the namesake that holds um, a lot of the roster spots on that side of the football. Looking at 24th defending the run and 24th defending the pass. Unfortunately for the Jets, even with Darnold returning, uh, they're lowest in the league in terms of generating explosive plays on offense, which would be pass plays for 20 yards or more. So they don't really pose any threat deep down the field. Uh, and that's really a staple of the Adam Gase offense where he doesn't want to throw anything further than five yards down the field. You look at Luke Falk, lowest in air yards per attempt uh, throughout his starts. Darnold was not much higher in the game that he started as well. And then it, the, it's just a mess for the Jets offensively. Um, so you'd like to think that they can potentially move the ball on the ground against the Cowboys, which uh, we saw Aaron Jones do last week for the Packers with relative ease. You'd like to think that Le'Veon Bell can do the same. That's probably the staple of their game plan. But should uh, the Dallas Cowboys get ahead, the sort of game state puts them in a little bit of a difficult situation. Uh, Adam Gase did say in a press conference that Darnold should be good to go, and he probably won't die if he plays on Sunday. He said that today in his press conference. Those were his actual words. So as a Jets fan, that's at least good to know that he's probably going to live through the Monday with his swollen spleen not being an issue anymore. Um, it just sort of puts the, puts the fate of the franchise uh, in a little bit of perspective here when you have a coach saying that on Thursday before a game on Sunday. Um, I, I Honestly, I would have thought that this game um, should have moved to nine. I don't think it was necessarily a surprise that Darnold was going to start in this game. So I thought that a lot of that was really priced into the seven and a half opening price that eventually moved up to eight and a half. So to see them sort of be announced... And we can really equate this movement back to seven and a half from eight and a half fully on information. If you look at the timestamps between when he was officially announced as the starter and when this line moved, it's almost it's within about five minutes of each other. So very clearly an information move on this. I again, I thought that that would have been priced in. We're getting to a point where it's seven or seven and a half. Like there's no way that you can look it back in the Jets in this game um, from the Cowboys perspective. They were what I thought was going to be one of the most popular teaser legs. I still think they are, and people are going to sort of mistakenly settle for value teasing off of the seven rather than teasing through the seven. Uh, but just the game, again, similar to Washington, Miami, similar to Cincinnati, Baltimore, where there's just one team that makes it so difficult to really put together an accurate handicap and be um, trustful in your numbers. And it's just another case where it's a game I'm staying away from um, simply for that reason. We've got a theme emerging here with the games, I think. It's a weird week. Right, so Tennessee Titans at the Denver Broncos. Um, it is another game where the market seems to be in agreement with the pinnacle traders. We're, we're still on the numbers that we opened at. Denver minus two and a half and the over-under of 40. We kind of spoken before about the, the home field advantage on Denver dropping away as we move out of September and through October. It still, still obviously has some kind of impact on the matchup. Um, Tennessee, they've been pretty unpredictable this season. They are coming up, coming in off the back of a poor performance against the Bills. So what do you think is going to happen here? Well, this was a game, I think the total movement's interesting. We talked on Monday in the preview podcast about how um, the traders were expecting money to come in on the under 
And we got as low as 38 flat, and it's now come back to 40, and it looks like it's trending higher. So I'm not sure necessarily what people are seeing from this total. I think that the under was pretty straightforward uh, when you're looking at both of these defensive units. If there's something that Tennessee does well, it's stopping the run. If there's something Denver does well offensively, it's running the football. And then if there's something that Denver does well defensively, it's stopping the pass. And if there's something that Tennessee has done well this season, um, it's occasionally get those big plays from the passing game. So when you look overall and you sort of adjust for schedule, those passing numbers for Tennessee um, sort of net out near the bottom of the league as one of the worst offensive attacks. And those Denver passing numbers on defense look a lot better. So you get a game where most likely Denver's going to have a str struggle running the football against the Tennessee Titans and the Broncos from a game planning perspective, just have to focus on stopping the run game of Tennessee. And we get a game that's really going to be a defensive struggle for most of the game. And I don't necessarily disagree with that handicap. Um, nothing has touched my account from this game. Again, again, the continuing theme goes on from the side perspective, as you mentioned, that home field advantage certainly dips off for Denver. Uh, we've seen that number come down as well, but really a game that I think is priced quite well. Tennessee is probably going to become an attractive teaser leg as we get closer to Sunday, being able to tease up through the three and the seven, potentially one you want to look at putting with Cleveland, two games with relatively low totals, um, but also appealing sides, being able to cross those two key numbers, really fitting the basic strategy for teasers, um, but not a game that I could really get involved with on straight wager side or total. Two games left, Adam. Hopefully something in there for betters to get excited about. There's not much coming. I hate to disappoint, but... <laughs> A little bit here on Sunday Night Football. We'll try again then with the Pittsburgh Steelers at the LA Chargers. So we have seen some movement on the Chargers. They opened at minus six. They're now minus seven. The over-under is another relatively low one at 41.5, but the market is slightly in favour of the over. So the Steelers have really had no luck in terms of their quarterback and they're, they're going to need to rely on the defence here if they're going to get anything out of it, I guess. And... I mean, the Chargers haven't been great. They went down again 20-13 to 13 against the Broncos last week there. Are the Chargers worthy of that seven-point handicap, do you think? I don't think so, but I'll tell you why I'm sort of hesitant on Pittsburgh. Um, the, well, obviously, the main reason, Delvin Hodges now in at quarterback in all likelihood after Mason Rudolph took one of the more violent hits you'll see on a quarterback throughout the NFL season. Um, so now we're getting a pretty well unknown third stringer coming from the FCS uh, making his first career start on the road at the Chargers. Not necessarily a difficult spot to play, but there is the travel element sort of attached into this. There is the bit of uncertainty between who's going to actually be the starters between him and Rudolph. Um, there's just a lot that he has to deal with making his first career NFL start. Probably not a situation he expected to find himself in entering the season behind Ben Roethlisberger and Mason Rudolph, who it's it's just surprising that we've got this far with the Steelers and how much this team has changed. If there's something that gives me a little bit of hope for Pittsburgh, it is that we finally saw their offense open up a little bit against the Baltimore Ravens defense. And teams have had a lot of success moving the ball on, on Baltimore, so I don't know how much of it is actually Pittsburgh making this effort to push the ball more downfield, which is something they lacked enormously throughout the first couple weeks of the season i don't know if it's them willing to do that and actually make a change in the right direction or it was just them backing into the game plan against the baltimore ravens which is something we saw the cleveland browns do a week ago as well um, but overall the steelers that box score was quite misleading uh, against the baltimore ravens pittsburgh outgained them by 1.5 yards per play and they won the turnover battle but ended up losing so a bit of disrespect overall from the market here, adjusting in favor of the Chargers, despite L.A. getting absolutely embarrassed at home versus the Denver Broncos. So interesting from that perspective where you sort of don't believe that there's too much value in the Chargers just from where we've seen this line move. But again, it comes down to can Pittsburgh, with now their third string quarterback, be willing to push the ball downfield? If they are, they're facing a secondary that has Roderick Teamer. Rayshon Jenkins and Michael Davis. And I personally, I don't know any of those three guys. And if you look at their pro football focus grades, you think that there's 32 teams in the league when you're looking at sort of a ranking anywhere from 64 to 90th because the secondary players often cross over. These guys grade out 71st, 80th, and 43rd at their respective positions. So this secondary for the Chargers absolutely decimated with injuries. It's just, it's, 
difficult to trust Mike Tomlin in this offense, especially with the third string quarterback. Maybe there's some solace in the fact that Jalen Samuel is injured, which takes away their wildcat gimmick offense that we've seen sort of show itself in the last two weeks. Uh, but it really comes down to trusting the Pittsburgh coaching staff. And in the NFL, when it comes to putting together a competent game plan, I don't think there's a coaching staff that you can trust less. So if they decide to push the ball downfield, they win or they cover and have the chance to win this one outright. If they stick to keeping the ball on the ground, uh, they're going to struggle. And the Chargers ultimately edged them in the end and probably um, threaten covering this number in their own right. So it just comes down to game plan. If you know, If you can find some information that really gets you confident, and the Steelers willing to throw the football downfield with their third-string quarterback, uh, then that's probably enough to get you to the window and put this bet into your account. Right, last up, Detroit Lions at the Green Bay Packers, and the pinnacle traders opened this up at Green Bay minus six, and we've seen plenty of action on Detroit, and it's shortened the handicap to just four and a half points on this one. Um, I think you said last week that you were kind of hoping the Packers didn't perform well against the Cowboys because it might open up some potential value in this game. They did obviously win, and they're quite heavily fancied now. So how do betters approach this one? Yeah, they were up by like four touchdowns at one point. They were 24, 28 points ahead. Um, That didn't go well. And then to make matters worse, despite that enormous difference on the scoreboard, they were outgained by 3.1 yards per play, which is as big of a difference as you'll ever see in in a loss, nonetheless. But in a game overall in the NFL season. So like the Packers very fortunate to get out of Dallas with a victory, uh, but really surprising to see them do it in the way that they did as well, whether it be uh, the four rushing touchdowns or the multiple turnovers that they sort of lucked their way into. Uh, But in terms of sort of setting up a potential sell spot on the lions, uh, the Packers put together, like they checked every box as to why, you would retreat on that. So uh, certainly disappointed to see where this number opened. Very disappointed to see how the Packers performed on Sunday. Um, the Lions, if they want to have success in this game, then they put forth the exact same game plan they put against Kansas City. Uh, Chiefs 32nd in rushing success rate. Packers 31st. But Green Bay is almost taking it to another level. They're continuously playing dying defense, uh, which means that you're bringing in a sixth defensive back into the field. And when you have your defensive back matched up against offensive linemen in the second level, that's not a battle you're going to win. So Mike Pettin has completely disregarded running defense so far this season for the Green Bay Packers, which for the Detroit Lions, not a team that typically rushes the football with much success. Uh, they identified that that was the weakness of the Kansas City Chiefs, and they executed through and through. And in all rights, they should have come away with that victory at home versus Kansas City. Um, now they go into Green Bay within the division, and they have to put forth the exact same game plan. If they do so, certainly going to have success against this Packers defense and probably keep this game competitive to the point where even four and a half points looks like it's a little bit large. So uh, a game that I'm not too interested in betting. Unfortunately, it didn't set up, but uh, it's interesting to see so much support for the Detroit Lions. And I think a lot of that is off of a very misleading result for the Green Bay Packers on the road at Dallas last Sunday. Well, there we go. Done and dusted. Another podcast episode's flown by. Yeah, not necessarily the most positive one in terms of giving some actionable info to deal with, but I think there was a couple spots in there that betters could take advantage of on Sunday. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of close matches this week, but I'm sure your insight will come in handy. So um, I speak for everyone listening when I say thanks for coming on and breaking down those difficult matchups for us. Uh, Do it every single week. We've got about 10 more to go plus the playoffs so we're moving through but looking forward to talking to you again looking at week seven numbers on sunday and for myself and adam as well thank you to everyone for listening the latest odds for week six are available on pinnacle.com good luck with your bets and remember to please gamble responsibly 